science. This is the podcast version of the Love and Science radio show from BCFM in Bristol. I'm Andrew Glester. I was joined in the studio this week by Josh Warren and David Judge, who we hear from first. So I am a PhD student um, based in the Science Communication Unit at the University of the West of England. Um, and um, so that means for the last three years I've been working with um, the Eden Project, um, looking at a new exhibition which they've created and trying to understand how they've created the exhibition and, and what people think about it and how it's affected them. Okay, so you have managed to wangle a PhD that sees you travelling down to the Eden Project. Yep, so I get to, get to go down to Cornwall quite often, which is really nice, oh. um, when it's not raining. Yeah. <laughs> no, although you can always just go in the domes, can't you, when it starts raining? Yes, that's true, yeah. It's very loud in there when it rains, though, because it's made of plastic. It's very uh, yeah. echoey. That's what it is. <laughs> well, if you're not making a radio show, it's all right, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so what, uh, tell us about the exhibition, then. What, what is it that you're evaluating? Um, so the exhibition is called Invisible Worlds, and it's about the interrelationship between um, all of the things um, in the world which we can't see, like microbes um, and the atmosphere um, and all those kinds of things, and how they relate to, them, to human health. Um, so how we're affected by things that we might not normally notice and how um, science has revealed um, those things to us or can give us a deeper understanding of those things. Is that any good? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it is. It's, it's a really interesting combination of um, what I would call more uh, traditional interactive science centre exhibits and art as well. Okay. Um, so I think it's quite a unique exhibition in that sense, yeah. So, so if, if it's an exhibition on things that you can't see... What are you exhibiting at the exhibition? <laughs> well, um, a lot of the exhibition kind of plays on the idea of scale. So um, for quite a few of the, of the exhibits there, they've um, made things which are very, very small, very, very big. So the centrepiece of the exhibition is this huge nine-metre-high ceramic sculpture called Infinity Blue, um, which um, represents uh, cyanobacteria. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. It's completely mesmerising to watch, and it, um, it shoots out smoke rings um, oh, cool. from its surface. It's really, really <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, very imposing. But it's about making the small things big so we can actually see them and understand Is it. Is it actually in those domes that we know, the famous domes of the Eden Project? No, so it's not in the domes. It's actually in um, a building called The Core, which is the Eden Project's education centre. It's a really interesting building, actually, because it's... Um, uh, the architecture is based on a Fibonacci sequence, um, so that kind of spiral pattern in a, a kind of head of sunflower seeds. Um, it's a really, really beautiful building which pe uh, people quite often actually overlook when they visit the Eden Project. So that's part of the reason why they built the exhibition there, oh, okay. to encourage more people to go into that centre. Is that happening? Um, yes, actually, I think it is. That's not part of what I'm looking at. I'm looking more at um, what the exhibition means to people in a kind of qualitative sense. Um, but yeah, it does seem to be encouraging more people to go into the building at least. Can I ask you a bit more about the Fibonacci sequence? Is that, is that springing <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not sure I could tell you anything more about it, but you can yeah. certainly ask. Because <laughs> it, it's something we see in nature quite a lot, isn't it? It's not just in sunflower seeds. Oh, yes. It's all, it's all over the place. Yeah, lots and lots of different things. Yeah. Um, My understanding is we don't actually know why 
but people are looking into why. Is that right, I'm, or do we know? I'm sure they are. I, I don't tell you know. what, let's look this up in the next song and then come back and talk about it after that. <laughs> yeah. advice. We're just misleading people, aren't we? Has the, has the project still got the zip wire? It has still got the oh, zip wire. Yeah. It's pretty hilarious because you hear people saying some pretty uh, profane things as they fly over the head. Have you done it? I have not. I've decided I'm going to do it once I've finished my PhD as a celebration. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Do you know, I've just looked up, I've just looked up the Fibonacci sequence while we were talking, and um, I'm going to get a mathematician to come and talk about it at some point, instead of us trying to explain yes, it. Yes, it's probably a good idea. Yeah, that's, that's very wise, yeah. But, see, but you've got an ex- uh, a background in, in this sort of ex- exhibitions of science? Yes, I've worked in exhibitions, um, kind of as a science centre explainer for uh, in the past for a while, um, but actually... Um, most of my experience has been in kind of presenting shows, uh, writing shows, that sort of thing. Okay, that yeah, sounds good. Because do- what we're doing right now is a live radio show, so I hope you'll stick yeah, with us. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> For the rest of the show and talk about some things. While we're here, just before we go to the next song, which will be Fear Gilmore's Saviors and All, everyone, that's coming up, lovely song, um, is you're part of something called Rising Ape. Yes, I am. So Rising Ape um, is, we're, we're a group of um, people who are interested in creating uh, exciting encounters for people with science. And we've actually got a new uh, or new-ish show, uh, which before, we're performing at the Room Above on the 22nd of February. Okay. Um, it's called Publish or Perish, and it's a kind of choose-your-own adventure style play where the audience get to direct um the life of a scientist oh yeah if people wanted to come to that how would they um they can google it (laughs) (laughs) so So, rising ape right it's rising ape yep it's at the room above um can you just 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 so people remember that it's called rising ape why are you called rising ape what does it mean what does it mean yeah um, so I believe it's uh, coined, it was coined by Terry Pratchett, uh, something to do with rising apes and falling angels. Um, cool. Sounds yes. good. Well, you can see David and rising ape at uh, the room above. Yes. Which is at which pub? It's um, at the White Bear the on White St. Michael's Hill. And if you look for Rising Ape, it'll come up as Rising Ape Collective. Listening to Love and Science on BCFM 93.2 F. Um, we were just hearing from David Judge, who is in the studio with us, and Josh Warren and myself, Andrew, for the next hour, well, less than an hour now, 40 minutes, talking about the science news. Um, sometimes the science news goes directly into the politics news. Um, quite often, our esteemed Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson, was it Dominic Cummings? I can never remember which one it is. Do you know which one? Oh, it is Boris Johnson who makes all the decisions, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And uh, so Boris Johnson has been criticised by Claire O'Neill, who he sacked. I mean, we're quite used to the word sacked with Boris Johnson, like when he was sacked for lying when he was a journalist and then sacked from his job as as a minister. And now he's, of course, the prime minister. But this time he sacked somebody else, Claire O'Neill, And she has criticised him, saying that he doesn't understand climate change, which is quite a worry, isn't it, when the world's in the state that it is. Um, He's also been saying quite often things like, we can do it, we can be the best, 
we can lead the world and things like that, um, which may seem completely empty and almost Trump-like, but maybe they're not, who knows. But um, <laughs> what he is uh, mostly saying that about is that we could use technology to reverse the effects of climate change, and that seems to be where he's put a, putting, sort of putting his focus in the battle against climate change. Unfortunately for us and our esteemed Prime Minister Boris Johnson, um, a report has come out which says that clean tech won't solve warming in time. I'm just going to have a rest and someone else <laughs> can breathe, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Josh, tell us about it. Yes. So um, the UK government has a target to try and get to, uh, well, try and be carbon neutral by 2050. Um, however, the method by which the government intends to do that is to rely on uh, is to rely on upcoming technology. Now, the two main technologies that we can hope to uh, help us in this are uh, carbon capture technology and uh, hydrogen technology. So, carbon capture is is the idea of being able to try and trap the CO2 being um, uh, exhausted from. Uh, power stations before it reaches the atmosphere and then hopefully use it in more useful things, perhaps even bury it, but all sorts of things uh, It gets quite expensive to do that and isn't quite as practical as one would hope just yet. Um, secondly, hydrogen. Uh, hydrogen technologies is the idea that you can uh, get hydrogen out of water. So water, as we know, H2O, is, uh, it's, we're hoping to split water and uh, make hydrogen from it, but, uh, and then you can use that hydrogen to fuel various uh, various different technologies, hydrogen fuel cells and things, all sorts of good stuff. But again, we're not very good at these things yet. We're not the, the technology isn't quite there to do these effectively, or to do these efficiently, or to do these without uh, uh, without making it um, energy efficient. And the government is hoping to rely on these technologies before 2050 in order to try and push us towards being carbon neutral at 2050, right? Mm -hmm. But because we're not good at them yet and the technology isn't going to improve enough for us to rely on them, we have to uh, do other stuff, uh, perhaps more controversial stuff, <laughs> yes. like, like trying to uh, bring down red meat and, and yeah. uh, fly less and do all this... All this yeah good stuff that we have to sacrifice. So we, we might have to do things that the experts say that we should be doing to combat climate change rather than relying on a possible future technology that we might invent at some point in the future. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think another interesting uh, point for me about this story is actually that um, a lot of the issues with introducing these new technologies, technologies are actually like the legal and safety and public concerns rather than the technologies themselves, which at the moment kind of largely, largely do exist. Um, the problem is that we're just too slow at actually taking them up. Um, whereas, obviously, people making individual changes in their lives, mm. they can do pretty much straight away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, well, there's the, the quote from uh, Baron Brown, um, who, uh, Baron Brown of Ladyton, 
which sounds like a sounds, character from like a novel. Trumpton character. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, says the report says uh, businesses and the public want to act to eliminate emissions, but exaggerate claims about the speed at which new technologies can be introduced. Are hold exa- sorry exaggerated claims about the speed with which new technologies can be introduced are holding back progress. The report continues, relying on breakthrough technologies to achieve zero emissions by 2050 is risky and delays action. Uh, Instead, today's technologies, we can meet the target for almost all activities, but we have no substitutes for cement, shipping, flying, lamb or beef. The report, also, the report also says that the UK can anticipate having four times as much emissions-free electricity in 2050 as today if current rates of renewable expansions continue. So that's good. Hmm. If we continue renewable energy expansion, maybe that's something we should subsidise more instead of, for example, fossil fuels or something like that. That would be maybe a suggestion that we could make to the government. You'd think that would make sense, wouldn't it? You're such a unique thinker, Andrew. (laughs) What what would we do without you? Um, So it seems uh, from the report, of course, that uh, the the technology, they're saying that this technology could come into place, but it's more likely by 2100 rather than 2050, which is when we need these things to have happened by. So technology is not going to be the thing that... uh, solves the climate crisis we're going to have to actually act on the climate ourselves oh well or hope the government (laughs) does um so but one area where technology is sort of being affected by the climate is in antarctica where a huge crack has developed in the antarctic ice underneath the British Antarctic Survey Research Station, the Halley Research Station, which is there. And there's an amazing story uh, in the last week where they actually managed to move the whole station. And it, just a picture of the station in its own right looks like something out of science fiction. Have you seen this story? Yeah, it looks like a strange six-legged insect. Yeah. It's very odd. It's amazing. And it, it, because of the way that it's built, well, if you see the crack... Uh, in, the, in the ice. I mean, it's huge. It obviously couldn't stay where it was. And it's, it is partly, not entirely down to climate change. Um, so just, to, just to be clear for the climate deniers listening, that doesn't mean to say climate change wasn't involved. It means it was part of what's caused the crack. And uh, what's really uh, interesting is that the, the, the way that it's been built is that it was built on skis and stilts so that it could move up and down as the snow floor um, changes with the seasons, which is that very thing that's been able to to enable them to move it um, 17 kilometres away from its original position. It's 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 not something to talk about too much on the radio, but if you just find yourself a computer and go and have a look at it, it's an incredible piece of engineering. And I recently spoke to Beth Healy, who's a medical doctor, who'd spent some time down at the British Antarctic Survey Station, and, well, she told us about what it's like when you don't have the sun. Yeah, losing the sun, it was a really strange thing. It wasn't one of the things that I thought about much before I'd gone down there, but um, it was definitely sort of in the summer before. It was the thing that everyone was talking about, is this long period. And I hadn't quite realised before I went down there quite how long it was. So it's 105 days you go um, without the sun. Um, I guess for me, like I'd already had a lot of experience of working up in the Arctic, so I was used to, to already sort of 24-hour daylight. And so, and I'd always coped really well with that. I'd always managed to keep my sleep-wake cycle normal. And so I was a 
little bit smug. I was like, oh, I'll be fine. And then as soon as we lost the sun, I found I couldn't sleep for the next four days. And it really, really affected me. So it doesn't correlate between the two. And, and I think that was probably the biggest challenge of all um, being down there was the, the effect that it did have on your sleep. Because you kind of stay in this weird like hibernation state almost. Because... You know when you go outside, you have the, the sun, it sort of wakes you up. You never quite wake up in the same way without it. And it was only when it came back that you really, really noticed quite the effect that it had on you. And, you know, the whole base was, like, super excited when it came back. It only popped above the horizon for about sort of a few minutes. But immediately everyone went to the gym, everyone was really happy. We had, like, a little party. And, and really the mood suddenly just lifted as soon as you got that energy from it. Because like, you're interested in... Psychology and the, the the health of astronauts. Yeah, I was talking to somebody recently who said he wasn't going to go and find a space on Mars until the Antarctic was full, right? Because so, the Antarctic is a terrible place to be, isn't it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, for me, growing up, the Antarctic, for me, was always the place to explore. You know, Antarctica, you hear all the stories about Scott and Shackleton and things. But, I mean, it's no longer really the case, I suppose. And so now, for me, space really is, in many ways, become the, the new Antarctica of our era. So, and, and it reflects it in so many ways. It's not just the remoteness, but also the sort of international collaboration that you see and the use of it as a scientific platform. I think there's so many um, things which are similar between the two that I think it really is just the sort of next extension and uh, yeah. So, but that, that experience <laughs> that you had where you lost the sun, yeah. you know, that, that was an alien thing for you. The, the, the people who walked on the moon and they were there for like a few days at a time. Yeah. Well, these missions we're talking about are for months at a time. Yeah. And what kind of effect is that going to have on people? I think it's going to be massive, and I, I think we can't underestimate the, the effect it will have on the crew. I think... Um, I mean, it's, it's difficult to say until we go, of course. I mean, we can simulate as many things as we like, but actually the, the mission itself will, will be the, 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 true thing, the true test. But um, I think definitely using platforms like Antarctica, using platforms like Mars 500, where you're sort of um, artificially isolating people, I think really are helping to sort of overcome some of the, the challenges that we'll face. So just really sort of highlighting... Um, key points in missions where people might be like more like less likely to run into trouble to isolate themselves and really having an awareness of when these um, these sort of trouble points might might arrive can help us counteract them really cool. I, I know you've got a job in mind but would you, do you want to go to mars <laughs> uh, for me the moon for me that's all about the moon first if i could get to the moon i'd be super happy yeah but uh, I think Mars is probably the, the next generation after me, but I hopefully will see someone step foot on Mars within, within my lifetime, and that's what I hope. Yeah. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Indeed you are, and that was, of course, Radiohead from the period in their career where they were making songs that you could play on the radio. And uh, we are listening to, as we say, Love and Science. I'm joined in the studio by Josh and David. Um, we've been looking through some of the science news in the early hours of this morning just after four o'clock, um, while we were all snoozing in bed as the wind ripped, whipped around our houses here in Bristol, the European Space Agency launched the Solar Orbiter mission. We did talk about it a bit on the show last week, but uh, Chris Lee from the UK Space Agency has called it the most important UK space science mission for a generation. Josh, you excited? Yeah, it's going to be good. As I said last week, I'm quite looking forward to the uh, quite cool pictures we're going to get from it. Yeah, it should yeah. be good. So, successful launch, and it's on its way to, well, it's about 
Um, I'm just looking at this article on Physics World. It's going to be 42 million kilometres from the sun, which seems quite a long way still, but compared to <laughs> us, it's, it's only a quarter of the distance between us and the sun. Uh, so I, I, I believe that's within the orbit of Mercury, right. which we haven't... Have we not done before? No, I, don't I don't think we've done that before. No, well, we've taken things to Mercury, but not within the orbit, I think. Mm. So, yeah, that's mm. amazing. Um, it's going to be some fascinating science done there. And um, actually, it's going to be looking at some of the space weather, some of the way that the sun puts out its material into, into space. And um, I, the, one of the things that... Um, the British Antarctic Survey place in uh, Antarctica we were talking about just before that song um, it is one of the things it does is monitors the magnetic field around our Earth which is of course key to protecting us from uh, the, the solar wind the particles coming from the sun and uh, they're having to shut it down because of what's happened partly due to climate change they've got to shut it down over the winter which means we won't be getting the data and there's actually a really weird global anomaly happening at the moment which we won't be able to measure because of that from the British Antarctic Survey which is kind of interesting um, from, there's an interesting science fiction book actually by uh, Jim Al-Khalili the physicist which is all based around what would happen if the polarity of the Earth switched um, yeah let's not go there in case anybody just comes at this point and thinks that that's what's actually going to happen <laughs> uh, so there's there's another um, space science story based in the UK or with a UK focus which has come up which is the green light for the UK commercial telecoms moon mission coming up on the BBC Josh yes so there is a UK satellite company uh, called SSTL I don't know what that stands for. I should have looked that up before I started this sentence, but so be it. Um, yes, it has the go-ahead to uh, produce and launch and make a uh, telecommunications spacecraft for the moon. So essentially, um, it's going to launch a satellite around the moon, uh, which is going to act as a communications relay between the Earth and any missions that might decide to go to the far side of the moon. Oh, okay. Yeah. So a bit like we have Mars orbiters, this is a moon orbiter. Yes. Okay. Yes, I believe that's right, yeah. Because one of the things that Tim Peake was doing on his uh, mission to the International Space Station was controlling a um, something, or looking for the, to the future where we might control um, robots on Mars from an orbiter going around the moon. So you'd actually have an, an astronaut orbiting Mars and then remote controlling a, a, a robot on the oh, surface. Cool. Wow. And Tim Pete was testing that for Earth. I guess we could do something like that for. Um, oh no, because this isn't a manned thing, is it? So, but it's more that we would send information to this and pick up information from it, and the the missions on the moon surface and around the far side of the moon will be able to send back their information to. Uh, yeah, because uh, part of the reason why it's called the far side of the moon is is uh, because um, the moon twists at the same rate as it orbits us and as a result uh, the far side of the moon is always on the far side of the moon to us and, it, and it, people often call it the dark side of the moon yeah but in, in fact there is no dark side of the moon as a matter of fact it's all dark yes sorry i want to play that now anyway we can't because we've got to talk science and uh, they, I, david are you interested in space at all I am a little bit, yeah. <laughs> do you think that's good then? That's great. You're on the right show. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you think we should fill it with satellites? Um, I'm undecided at the moment. Okay. Um, I think there are a lot of, well, what I've heard is that a lot of astronomers are making um, a lot of fuss about satellites 
blocking their view of the sky. Yes. Um, but whether that actually is such a big problem and whether that will become a bigger problem in the future, I don't know yet. Yeah, there seems to be. So there's a, there's a story uh, about OneWeb, the UK-based space company OneWeb, has sent 34 satellites into orbit on a single Soyuz rocket from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, um, which essentially OneWeb's goal is to bring the internet to everybody on planet Earth. Um, it's it sort of make it a free... I think, eventually, the idea is to make it into a freemium thing that you mm. it's, you don't pay for it. And, but certainly in, in the... In the initial stages, it's about making... Because it's, it's hard to imagine it, the world that we live in, but there are large parts of, this, of the world yeah. that don't have the internet. Yes. The problem is that if you're doing it with satellites, then the argument is that both OneWeb and SpaceX have been sending up uh, the Starlink satellites, and those have actually been interfering with some... Um, astronomical obs- observations. They produce light, or they reflect light, and produce light which interferes with the radio astronomy and the optical astronomy that people are doing. It reminds me of... Um, there's a science fiction story. I can't remember which one now. But in it, um, they put big Coca-Cola sign in space. It's and a bit like that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It is a little bit like that. Uh, and it's hard to know what to, what, what to think, because these are private companies... Yeah. So the fact that they're doing it is advertising for themselves. Those dots that we can see are advertising for these these companies. Mm. But if what those companies are doing is satellites which are delivering information about what's happening to our planet or they're providing the internet to parts of the world that can't get it otherwise, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, and it's and it's becoming a sort of modern day space race really as well because this company OneWeb and you you mentioned uh, Amazon and Elon Musk it, it, it's, it's all these companies just fighting to fill the sky with as many satellites as possible and to quick, to quickly commercialise it all and, it, and it, it's, it's yeah it's a difficult question really I'm not quite sure um, as you said what, what big an impact it has to uh, astronomical observations and things but it, it can't be good surely well, if we just if we get more and more and more then even if we don't know now and I think that the fact is we don't know now what the impact is and we need to have more studies but these things are going up before those studies are done right? mm. yeah. they, these, th- these are things that are being launched into space before we know what the impact of them is going to be um, and that, that is definitely a concern for somebody like me who is fascinated by um, space science, space technology satellites and etc. But it's really about what's happening behind those satellites for me. It's really about the observations of the universe out there that, that is the science that really fascinates me. And if this is going to get in the way of that, um, well, I think we should hold off, personally. I think we should <laughs> just wait. Maybe we should. I think that um, there's something else for me which is quite concerning, which is, um, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's the Kessler effect. So that's this idea that... Um, our, after a certain critical mass of space debris of leftover satellites and bits and bobs has um, built up, <clears throat> then the amount of space debris will just continue to increase and increase forever as things hit into each other and break off and and um, until eventually um, the whole um, kind of a whole kind of sphere around the earth is completely full of debris, and we can 't actually launch safely into space anymore mm. um, I think 
perhaps we're quite far away from that situation happening but um, like you say it's a bit of a space race at the moment mm. and I think if we're carelessly firing thousands of satellites into space willy-nilly like um, SpaceX wants to put 12,000 satellites yeah, yeah uh, it's, an, it's an enormous number of, yeah. of satellites that they want to put up yeah and this is yeah, this is just the start of it this this 34 that they've just sent up is a drop in the ocean in comparison yeah it's going to be thousands well it's a story that will keep going um, I've Last year, maybe the year before, I spoke to Peter Beck, who is the chief executive of Rocket Lab in uh, New Zealand. And Peter Beck put up something into space called the Humanity Star. At the time, it was the first of these things. It was a temporary thing. But I was asking him then about the future, really, and what, what goes into launching something like this into space. And I just thought it would be interesting to listen to it again now. It's deliberately placed in an, in an orbit um, such that uh, you really need to be looking down on the horizon at dawn and dusk. So um, you know it's 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 not uh, you know it's not this giant shiny thing brighter than the moon, you know, piercing above your head. Um, you really you, you need to really hunt out for it, and that was kind of the point. Is we wanted we wanted people to go and look for it, so they you know in looking for it they actually get to see the universe that's around it. I'm picking up from what you're saying that you've you've had a bit of backlash from from some people but have you had people saying that it is making them look up and it's a great thing and oh yeah oh i mean we, we've had so much uh, so much um and you know for 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 equally that there's a kind of people that that um, you know that's mr mark on there's there's an equal number if not more um who who uh who has had a profound effect um and uh you know it's it's we we get just just hundreds of emails a day of, of people who um, you know who have who are excited about it and and who have experienced it, and um, you know it's it's you know it's it's certainly um, certainly having having a huge effect. And you know when I think about you know what got me into space, it was when I was about four years old. My father took me outside and showed me a satellite, and that um, was just a mind blowing experience. Is that what's this thing in the sky? And then. You know, I remember asking all the questions, you know, well, well, what are these other stars and is there anybody looking back at me or, you know, it was kind of a, you know, a hang on a minute moment. Um, and uh, you know, it's just great to see those moments occurring uh, for a whole lot of other people um, around, the, around the planet. Yeah. Did you did you yep. speak to anybody about it before? Well, I mean, you have to go through a whole licensing process, both in the US and New Zealand. So it had, it had, to, had to be bought off by the, both the New Zealand government and, and a whole lot of licensing processes. And... Um, you know, we're, we're very careful to make sure that we put it into an orbit, um, a very short lifetime orbit, um, and, uh, you know, it put it in a place where it, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't going to be, um, you know, cause, you know, great issues to, to anybody. But, you know, to put it into context, that the whole reason was to get, get people discussing and talking about um, the bigger issues for humanity. And, you know, although, like I say, it's missed the mark for some people, um, they still are talking. Um, it's, it's mission success. And uh, and you know if the conversation is you know, we really don't don't like the humanity star and um, you know it's supposed to help us think about uh, you know hum, humans as a species, well the fact that that has even come up in the conversation is is um, is a definition of of, of success. Yeah. Is there any risk of a what's it called the Kessler, is it Kessler syndrome? Is there any risk of that with this? You have to explain me the Kessler oh, right. syndrome. Well, I believe one thing in orbit can rise. Have you ever seen gravity, right? One thing in oh, orbit. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. No. No. Okay. no. I mean, um, so, so you know, we had the option of putting up a mass simulator that did absolutely nothing. 
Um, and that's typically what, what uh, you do on a first launch vehicle. Um, or the option of doing something that, um, that you know, will have an effect to um, a, large, a large portion of the population and something that the whole planet can, can share in. So, you know, in that respect, um, you know, we, we use the payload um, wisely. But, uh, you know, we, we, can't, we can't just put it any old where, you know, it was very, very carefully placed um, all through the, the right regulations to ensure that, um, that uh, you know, it wouldn't cause any, any of those kinds of effects. And it's a very short term life, you know, it's only up there for nine months. Um, you know, uh, we would put into context with, um, with, with the, you know, SpaceX's launch on a billion year lifetime, um, it's uh, it's 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 a it's a very short, you know, glinting moment in 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 Earth's history, mm. and uh, like I say, if it is if we if we change just a few people's perspective, they may be the few people that are the world leaders in the future that have a, have a big effect. How do you put something in an orbit so it's only visible in dusk and dawn? How do you do that? Yeah, so that's to do with the inclination. So um, you know, we put it into an eighty-three degree degree inclination in an elliptical orbit. Um, and, uh, you know, just the way that there's got to be a lot of things that need to line up for you to, for it to be visible. So firstly, you know, it has to be nighttime. Uh, secondly, the sun has to be at exactly the right portion of the sky to reflect off the panels. And then, you know, obviously, thirdly, you've got to be standing on the ground as the, as the, you know, the ball is rotating to be able to reflect it to your point on the planet. So, um, you know, if you stand outside for the next nine months in the one place, you'll have about half a dozen opportunities to actually see it. So, um, you know, it's it's not a, a giant persistent thing in the sky. It's, uh, it's something you really have to search out for. And that was exactly the point, is to get people looking for it and actually going outside. And, you know, the definition of success is, is them just going outside and looking up, whether they see it or not. Is, is is largely irrelevant but at least they've gone outside and they may have had a conversation about uh, about this little rock they're floating on yeah and and you don't think because uh, some people have said that it's going to interfere with sort of astronomical observations and stuff do you have anything to say on that well i mean that's why we put it in in the orbit that it is it's like i say um there's very little astronomical uh, work done at dawn and dusk on the horizon um you know that's it's it, the day has begun so or the day is ending so um you know there's a tremendous amount of light there already yeah. so um we, we we really don't see it should uh, should affect um astronomical observations at all if i could if we wanted to send something into space with you how do we do that well i mean uh i guess the the first thing is you'd contact us and then we would look at your payload and and make sure it's something that we want to fly and something that um that is going to survive a flight. Okay. Um, then, um, then you have to go through the various uh, licensing organisations. So, um, you know, if they had communications on it, you need FCC licences that have any optics on board. You need NOAA licences. Um, you'd need uh, whatever, uh, wh wherever you are or building the satellite, you'd need that country's approval and licence and government's licence. Yeah. Uh, you'd need the US government's uh, approval and licence. And then finally, because it's launching out of New Zealand, you'd need a New Zealand approval and licence. So we have a, a wide range of customers ranging from, uh, you know, early stage startups looking to put satellites in orbit uh, for entirely new ideas uh, through to, you know, very sophisticated scientific payloads from NASA. So we have quite the spectrum of customers. So NASA is a customer of yours? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. They're on flight four. 
what, what are they sending up? Uh, they've got a, a suite of 12 payloads um, and um, uh, of various various spacecraft. Um, and yeah, look, there's there's some really really awesome stuff on 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 there. Um, some really really neat science. How cool is that? That's pretty cool. Yeah. No, that's... <laughs> How did did you end up launching stuff into space? Tell me a bit about you. Yeah, like like I say, it it came from that very moment. I I think I must have been about four or younger when my father took me out out and uh, and pointed up to the to a satellite and said, "Oh, this is cool, isn't it?" And uh, for me, that was that was kind of the moment where where it was just it was just like, "Well, hang on, this is this this is a little bit too much to comprehend." And and um, uh, and and that that was where the fascination started for me. And um, you know, I was a and not so much now, but an avid, avid astronomer myself. So um, really, uh, really, um, you know, enjoy uh, you know, and kept kept captivated by space. Um, uh, but I am from a family of engineers, and um, and for me, it was uh, I, I love doing things that are really hard. Um, and uh, you know, what what was harder than than this? So I started building rockets when I was at school and um built rocket bikes and rocket packs and all kinds of kinds of things and uh you know uh, i reached a point where in my career where um you know i'd been um i've been corresponding with a whole lot of a lot of folks in the u.s and i went over to the u.s um on a bit of a rocket pilgrimage this was when how old was it been there 24 or something like that um no, it was, it was later than that. But anyway, I went over to the US on a rocket pilgrimage and visited all of the, you know, NASA and and Aerojet Rocket Dyne, all those companies. And really, uh, there was there was two um, there was two things that I took out of that. Is one, um, firstly, it wasn't how I thought it was. Um, uh, I thought that uh, you know, small launch um, would be very obvious and everybody would be gung ho for that. Um, we sort of learned that uh, you know it was a little bit more, and this is pre-SpaceX days. It was a it was much more conservative than, than I realised. The other thing I realised is that what I was doing back in back in my workshop wasn't a million miles away from what a lot of other companies were doing uh, in their laboratories. You know, we we had the same combustion and stability issues and the, the, using the same kind of instrumentation. So it's kind of a moment where where it was it was just. It seemed the right time to just uh, just step out and try and form Rocket Lab. So, I, uh, you know, on the plane trip back, I doodled the logo, landed, quit my day job, and then started Rocket Lab. When you're listening to Love and Science on BCFM, we're coming up towards the end of the show. We've just got time for maybe one story about bees. David, yep. tell us about some so bees. About some bees. Um, so, um, some scientists at the University of Texas have recently um, genetically modified um, honeybee gut bacteria to help them to be, uh, the bees that is, help them to be more resistant to um, deformed wing virus, which is a really common virus that infects honeybees. Okay. Um, and obviously honeybees are really important pollinators, so anything we can do to um, protect them from getting infected um, and to keep their colonies healthy is really, really important. So uh, the the headline for this is a microbiome microbiome silver bullet for honeybees. I always thought a silver bullet was a bad thing, but apparently it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I thought that <laughs> as well. Yeah, um, no, it's it's a really really good thing. So what the scientists um, have done is um, they've taken um, one of the gut bacteria that actually lives symbiotically with the honeybee called um, 
Snodgrassella Alvi. Okay. It's really I interesting. I think he plays for West Ham. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what, they've, what they've done is they've uh, modified it so that it actually produces um, some of the virus RNA. Okay. Uh, and that, that um, means that the... Um, that the bees themselves actually um, it induces a kind of um, uh, immune response to the virus that so they're protected when and if looks they after do the bees. Infected. That's great. Yeah. Next week, thank you for joining us. We're going to be talking about sweaty robots. This has been Love and Science, and after the news, it's probably going to be some more wonderful music here on BCFM.